Quick, let's talk shit about Madison. What a thumbbot. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> I am in full agreement. I'm going to change her name to Thumbbot in the script. <laughs> like on the end? Yes. We're so funny. Yeah, we're pretty clever. Oh, I wish we could be done now so we can hear her say Thumbbot. <laughs> it'll, nice, it'll be a nice treat. Let's do a podcast. Why? Veto. No, don't veto, veto that. I also veto. That's why, no, that's why we met All right, this let's morning. hang up. I'm just going to sit here with my pumpkin spice latte. Dum dum bum bum Welcome back to Grogtober, the spookiest tober you'll ever grog. I'm Goblin King, Catherine Johnson. I'm Robin Coppock. And I'm Maddie Gray, the Goblin Queen. Nope. That means we're married. No, we're married. You can't. And you're listening to Grow Up, a Saturday morning podcast for selfish, entitled, bitchy millennials. Whoa. Where we? <laughs> Whoa. I I have a reason. I'll go. I'll come back to it. Don't you worry. You had better. Where we deconstruct media from our childhoods, analyze it as adults, and see what lessons we can learn. This week on Grow Up, as promised. And only because we promised it to you, the movie Labyrinth. <laughs> Labyrinth. Labyrinth. So why did we choose Labyrinth? Does anybody I... know? No. No. We all had a moment where we went, why did we do this? Yes, that absolutely happened. Because I don't like Labyrinth, and I was the only one who had seen it of the group, and somebody... Had, we were saying things we could do for Halloween, and one of you guys said Labyrinth, and I was like, I'm not going to let my personal trauma of being afraid of puppets get in the way of the podcast. Well, I have never seen Labyrinth, so it certainly was not I. It I've seen, like, me. parts of Labyrinth, but I don't know that I would have recommended it. I know it wasn't me, because I... Couldn't. Where did this come from? How yeah, did but we end I, up so doing this movie? Mystery one. How did we end up doing Labyrinth? I just remembered trying to be a team player and saying, sure, we can do Labyrinth. But how was it even suggested in the first place? It was yeah, not how? me, because I'm afraid. I cried while we watched this movie. I have a question. Uh-huh. What? Was it a ghost? Clear. It is Grogtober. It is Grogtober. You ha- heard it here first, folks. We had this movie suggested to us by a ghost. This is definitive proof. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, I think we might need to become ghost hunters. Yeah. Well, you know okay. those, you know those uh, things that like skeptics and cynics say, oh, I'll pay a million dollars if you can prove the existence of supernatural. Well, we just. We just I would like my million dollars, please. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You may send that to growthepotup at gmail.com. Yeah. <laughs> so what is Labyrinth? It's a 1986 musical fantasy directed by Jim Henson, written by Terry Jones, and executive produced by George Lucas. Can I already put an asterisk on this? Y- yes. yes, you may. So the script of this movie went through so many changes. Like somebody wrote a novella of it and then... Terry Jones didn't like that, so he just made up his own story, and it went through 25 rewrites with, like, three other writers, all of which could not agree on what they really wanted the movie to say and be, so it it ended up with nobody really feeling like it was their work. (laughs) Yeah, Terry Jones... Terry Jones was, like, quoted as saying this didn't feel like his story anymore. Yes. I think that kind of makes sense, just the structure of it is so it's a bunch of disparate scenes yeah it's it felt very disconnected yeah in a way that something that's overwritten terry terry jones's main issue with it was that he did not want anyone to see the center of the maze before we got there he didn't want to see you know the goblin king hanging out with the goblins Mm -hmm. but they were like but it's david bowie and we want him to sing songs yeah well, yeah, but why couldn't that have happened in the maze? Yeah. Also, why do we need David Bowie singing songs? Yeah, that's that's a question. <laughs> Let's take apart everything this movie has assumed we wanted. Yeah. 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 <laughs> 
I'm sorry. I'm sure a lot of people really love Labyrinth. I was shown Labyrinth when I was in college by people who really loved it. Yeah, and I'd never seen it before, so I I did not know what to expect. In fact, I had it confused in my head with Pan's Labyrinth. (laughs) Very different movies. Which apparently are different movies. Absolutely. Yeah, very different experience from what I expected walking in. And Robin insisted that I get a little high before I watch the movie. Which and that was a scary choice. When you texted me that, I wanted to (laughs) fly to Seattle and save you. Yeah, I wanted you to. It's I I needed you to. I've been thinking about how much I want to talk about my fear of puppets because it's not like a funny haha thing for me. It's something I've like never talked about with you guys or really anybody. Yeah. Um but when I was watching it by myself, I realized at one point that I had tears streaming down my face. Oh. <laughs> like, there were certainly parts of it I really enjoyed, but I'm very afraid of puppets. I have since a, since I was a kid been convinced puppets are going to try to kill me and eat me. Dear God. Yeah. <laughs> so, Never Ending Story I thought was going to be the first one we did on this podcast that I was going to have to come face to face with. Yeah. Because I was very afraid of it when I was a kid. But I was like more open to doing Labyrinth because I did see it as an adult the first time. Well, so, just so that the listeners know, we uh, have a system where when somebody suggests something, if it's that triggering to us, we can veto. I'm trying to be brave. <laughs> yeah, we're being brave. But you did uh, say... being very brave. But you have vetoed NeverEnding Story. I think I would be open to NeverEnding Story. So yeah, this is uh, Puppets and Jim Henson. This is actually something that I kind of wanted to talk about anyway. So, ha-cha. Jim Henson worked primarily on children's entertainment, including The Muppets and Sesame Street, which is kind of what he's most known for. But in order to keep himself from being typecast as like a children's entertainer, and in order to appeal to adults, he also... uh, worked on some more adult projects for instance this and uh he wrote on the first season of snl uh and he also i didn't know that yeah um he also he and his whole team made a movie called the dark crystal Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we're not doing the dark crystal um this is ever also <laughs> I we've gotten that suggestion too. Um, Catherine, I don't know if you remember this, but like in sixth grade or maybe seventh grade or whatever, Mrs. Painter had us watch in drama class something called The Storyteller. Do you yeah, remember I that? Remember. Yeah, and it, I remember. it's like a, a series, uh, like TV series of fairy tales and folklore stories, uh, also done with like both humans and puppets. Oh, I remember. And um, that's, you know, one of the things that I I really wanted to talk about because this particular story follows a very folklore sort of fairy tale structure. And that has like a very Jim Henson uh, influence in the sense that like he as a a creator had a a love of those old classic fairy tales, classic stories. And this is like very very classic in its uh structure i guess it is and like in style it's also very i couldn't put my finger on it until i started the research and i don't like to do the research beforehand yeah but it's very monty python yes when i read that i was like oh yeah that's what that missing piece was yeah, yeah when that makes sense when i watched it the second time i was like i definitely see it um so terry jones who was he was the credited writer, but again, there were so many rewrites, and mm-hmm. by the end, he didn't think it was his story anymore. Um, I was reading about how he actually, the story that he wanted to create was that uh, Jareth was trying to use the labyrinth to keep people away from him because he was, like, so secluded, mm. and that uh, his heart resided in the labyrinth. And that when she got there, that's why there was this like weird sexual tension thing going on. Yeah, I like was that, that he was falling in love with her as she came closer to the labyrinth. Terry Jones he co-directed Monty Python and the Holy Grail with T- Terry Gilliam. Gilliam and 
Gilliam. Oops, I misspelled that. We don't want uh, tweets. <laughs> yes, tweet me, roast me, do it. Uh, but he also directed Life of Brian and Monty Python, at The Meaning of Life, by himself. Those are the best ones. Now, Catherine, I don't know if you noticed. I did notice. <laughs> but uh, I didn't write anything about George Lucas. There is. Because uh, <laughs> I figured you could just rattle things off for yeah, us. Yeah, there's a bullet point here in pink, which is my color, that says George Lucas. Let Catherine rattle things off on the spot. <laughs> George Lucas. Um, <laughs> so I watched this alone. And then I watched it with Robin and I told him before, I'm like, George Lucas uh, co-edited this and executive produced it and had a hand in the writing process. I am completely convinced his additions were only references to the bog of eternal stench. Oh. Because that is so... That did feel very Star Wars-y. I hate that you said that. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's very episode one with like... Yes. The animals burping and farting all the time. Yeah, that's that's more what I was referring yes, to. Yeah, <laughs> which Robin was enjoying parts of it that I wasn't. But when we got to the bog of eternal stench, which I just think is unforgivably awful, I don't think it's like fun or funny. I just think it's awful that there are like yeah. buttholes farting out of this bog. <laughs> It's not done in a way that I find it interesting. It's just gross. To be fair, I did not see one single butthole. Those things, there were like, there were these like fleshy holes coming up from the bog farting. <laughs> oh, yeah. They were supposed to be I guess assholes. those words definitely. Assholes. Butthole esque. Yeah, without the cheeks. And Robin, you had even said, he's like, I have to admit, this is really gross. (laughs) (laughs) And not in a fun way. I have a pretty high tolerance for gross things. And I have a very low tolerance, but you said that it was gross. (laughs) So So, Catherine's won. Yeah. Yeah, Catherine, you're the winner. I won Labyrinth. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just declare a winner every episode. (laughs) It's me. Wait, weren't we supposed to roast you this episode? You can't. (laughs) Too damn lovable. That's true. (laughs) You are so (laughs) lovable. Thank you. (laughs) You thought that was going to upset me. It didn't. I like to upset Catherine by doing cutesy things at her. She doesn't like it. I'm just going to take it today because I'm just a lovable, affable individual. Yeah. Who did not like the buttholes in Labyrinth. Is that an insane thing to say? No, I just, do- <laughs> I guess maybe I didn't make the connection, <laughs> but I should have. I should have. That was stupid of me. <laughs> Keep in mind, though, I was pretty high and very scared of the hands. The hands were scary. When we were watching that, I was like, why do they have to be gross? Why can't they be nice hands? Why do they, why does everything have to be I scary honestly thought gross? that part was so clever. I mean, yes, it was beautiful and i've seen clips of it since but because i wasn't expecting it i i was like ready for the puppets because i knew that Catherine didn't like puppets and i knew that she didn't like this movie and then suddenly there were just like hands talking yeah and robin you convinced me to do something that made that movie scary that was the point it's <laughs> halloween month it's grogtober yeah and this movie scared me yeah it did it scared me it didn't scare me as much as it sounds like it scared Catherine. It scared me a lot. But, but there were moments where I was like, no, no. And <laughs> Robin was there to witness it. And I don't want to completely dunk on it, but because like I can see the merits of it, but I can also see the shortcomings. I think a lot of its shortcomings actually come from its lack of cohesion between the creative team. Yes. and But, but I mean, yeah. And I would say writing. Not so much, like, production design and that sort of thing. I know that they put a lot of work into that, and a lot of puppeteers had to work extremely difficult, or work extremely hard in difficult situations. And, like, the scene with Jareth doing the dance magic dance scene mm-hmm. um, took, like, 40 puppeteers. And when I read... Yeah, because weren't there, like, 50 puppets on the screen yeah. at one time? and I read that and went, why? Yeah, honestly, <laughs> not worth it. <laughs> I was like, it was not worth it. No, it 
wasn't. I I don't know what like I still like Jim Henson. I don't know why I like Jim Henson because I think why it, the puppets are so unnecessary. <laughs> mm. I don't have a well. That's his art form, isn't it? Like that's just what he. That's how he expresses himself artistically is through. And puppets. I don't get why I don't get people who express themselves through puppets. I was also reading that his children, like they found it very hard to connect with them, so they all became puppeteers. Huh. Yeah, because like the only way he knew how to connect was while he was working, because he was like a crazy workaholic. Yeah. And in fact, yeah. when this movie flopped in the no in the box office. When it didn't yeah. make as much money as he thought it was going to, because they spent a lot of money on this movie. They only made back half of their budget. Yeah. Which is a major flaw. He, like, went into a deep depression and, like, didn't really come out of it until, like, before, right before he was dead. <laughs> His son was like, oh, no, like, Labyrinth is now a cult classic. People are really starting to like it again. Yeah. Or and ever. He, that was the last movie he ever made. Yeah. Oh, wow. Like, the story and the themes, mm-hmm. I like. Yeah. The puppets and the aesthetic scare me. Yeah. I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit because I want to talk about what that story is so that we don't get too far into the podcast without telling everybody what happens in this movie. Um, the movie opens with Sarah reciting lines out of a play called The Labyrinth and struggling to remember her lines. And then suddenly the clock strikes seven and she realizes she's supposed to be home to watch her baby brother. But after this dramatic confrontation with her stepmom, Sarah discovers that her teddy bear is missing from her room. And Lancelot. Yeah, Lancelot, her little teddy bear. And she finds it in her brother's room, like right next to his crib. He's this baby. And he's like two. She resents him and wishes that the Goblin King from her play would come take him away. And then he does (laughs) like toby suddenly vanishes in a wave of glitter david bowie appears yes he does man that glitter was a lot uh that glitter was everything i didn't even notice no i loved the glitter you didn't notice the glitter yeah well david bowie plays jareth the goblin king who tells sarah that in order to get her brother back she has to solve his labyrinth within 13 hours and then Jareth transports them to the labyrinth and leaves Sarah to her quest. Sarah's a brat. Oh my god, I hated the entire movie. I was just like, oh, I hate her. Like, even even with the character yes. growth, she grew a lot. I'm gonna admit to that. But, like, they did not establish anything relatable or likable about her in the beginning. So I never forgave her. <laughs> there was... There's a screenwriting technique called Save the Cat, and there's a book called Save the Cat, mm-hmm. and it's a really good screenwriting book, and it's the idea that to make audiences like your protagonist, you have them do something good in the beginning, like save a cat from a tree, mm-hmm. and then they're going to forgive them later when they do bad things, you yeah, know, and totally make bad choices. That's, that's why we have these characters like Dumbledore, who, like, we feel so endeared to no but we feel so endeared to Dumbledore because he does so many good things throughout the series Early. before we find out that under the scenes he was doing bad things this movie does like a reverse save the cat where she is awful in the beginning and then is squeaky clean a perfect person the rest of kind it kind of although there's a lot of disagree this is not squeaky clean throughout yeah she does a lot of things that eh, and this is something that madison and i talked about and uh i wanted to bring this up with you very very this is this is uh you know looking at it through a modern lens uh this girl this main character is a white feminist yeah she's definitely an allegory for a white feminist right um like, the entire time she was just stepping on the people around her to get to the top, using what privilege she had and what privilege she could oh, muster. You're to- You're right. I, we said something about that with Ludo, yeah. where she did this nice thing and then was immediately expecting him to take her to the middle of the yeah. maze. And, like, the the thing that, the, the, the instance that, for me, was the most, like, obvious, this is a white feminist, like, is the scene where she arrives at two doors, one of whom has a ring in its ears and one of whom has a ring in its mouth. Oh, yeah. And she takes the ring out of the mouth of one of the doors 
and talks to the door, gets the information that she needs, and then shoves the ring back in his mouth against his wishes. He keeps saying like, no, I don't want it back in my mouth. She literally holds his nose closed, shoves the ring back in his mouth, and then just moves on her way, totally forgets about That entire scene, I was just thinking, first of all, she took the ring out of the one door's mouth. And I was like, that's nice of you. Now take the ring out of the the ears of the other one. And she never did that. And then she forced the ring back into the mouth of the other door just so that she could get what she wants. Like, as he was expressing his lack of consent, he was like, no, no, I don't want that. I don't want this. She forced (laughs) it back back in. in your mouth hole. Which, yeah, is, like, it's a really good allegory for white feminism because her cause is, like, to save her baby brother, which she would think, like, oh, this cause is more important than one individual person's consent. And I can see how a white feminist would justify that. Sure. Yeah. Where it's, like, to get the right to vote, we don't need to worry about black female voters. It's, we just need to get women to be able to vote. And then we can help. The rest yeah. of us. Not to Those mention people. the problem was like caused by her own selfishness. Oh yeah. Absolutely. She literally just said, I wish you would take this baby away. And then when she realized that that was not something that uh she's like, Oh wait, that was a bad thing for me to do. Oops, I guess no, I'll and go. She never actually came to terms with the fact that that was her fault. Yeah. Like, she was like, I have a mission, and I have to complete the mission. And, like, halfway through, it was no longer about Toby at all. She hadn't mentioned his name for, like, 40 minutes. But now it became about her mission and completing it. More about, like, I made a mistake, and I must atone for that mistake. Yeah, there is never, like, a moment of self-doubt. No. And I think maybe that, that naive, young selfish thing that you can see past other people's needs and like focus on your own i don't know i don't think that by the end i think she overcomes that somewhat i think she's still pretty selfish but well yeah no see that's the thing for me because we're meant to believe that she has made this character growth where she has become a like new person that cares about other but that literally happens as so- like as soon as the baby goes away, as soon as the baby disappears, she thinks, oh, that's a bad thing. I shouldn't have wished for the baby to be gone. And then the character growth happens where she makes the choice to go after the baby. But after that, it's all just her doing the right thing, having made the right choice. It's not character growth. It's like the character growth happens literally within seconds of her having said, I wish the baby wasn't there. Uh, yeah like given the way she was behaving in the beginning of this movie when she was like i wish the goblin king would take you away right now what a and then she turned around and toby stopped crying like if she was that person she would have kept walking (laughs) (laughs) i don't think she would have noticed until the morning time yeah and not to mention like Kind of the only reason she goes after the baby is because she doesn't want to get in trouble. She doesn't want to get in trouble. Yeah. This reminds me of one of the episodes of Pokemon we watched, the um, the Samurai, mm-hmm. where Ash, his, where Pikachu or something, not Pikachu, one of his Pokemon gets stolen or something, and he has to get the Pokemon back and he keeps blaming everybody else for oh, yeah. losing his Pokemon. It was, it was uh, Kukuna. Yeah, and or Caterpie. Or no, it was who Kukuna. Tur- who at turned that point. into Kukuna at that point. Yeah, and um he loses his Pokemon, so it's very, very similar, and then keeps blaming everybody else, and then at the end finally admits the the reason that Kukuna was taken is my fault. And like and he says it explicitly. He like has that character development, that moment of this was my fault and I'm sorry. Sarah never had that. Yeah. It was just her like doing the right thing until the end and then being yeah. rewarded for it, which again feels like white feminism to me. So she's doing the right thing for herself and then she gets yes. rewarded. I think the other moment of character growth for me is the scene in which she's been okay and we'll talk about 
the other elements of this the in a minute. The movie scene? Yeah, the scene in which she's been drugged. So we'll talk about that in a bit. But that's the other moment of character growth where she is having all of these childhood things piled onto her back uh, in some random... Oh, my God. Yeah, underworld kind of thing by a trash woman. And that is supposed to be like, these are the parts of your childhood that you need to be leaving behind. Uh, Not need to be, you know, but that's kind of like the, the lesson of this particular again disparate scene Um, it's so funny because it's like reverse psychology though because like the whole scene is about that woman trying to convince her to care about these things and and you know it's a it's a good scene and it's it's powerful and like you know meaningful in its own way but it 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 doesn't seem to have been built on anything in terms of again like character growth character development there are no preceding scenes which are about her leaving things of her childhood in the past or her like overcoming the like desire to live in this fantasy world um yeah so it doesn't have you know other than the visual elements of it being like a really strong like metaphor that works as its own scene it doesn't you know have that much it's not that compelling in the grander scheme of the movie itself. Um, But it is, you know, it is the other moment of character growth. And uh, because after the, you know, just to skip ahead a lot, at the end of the movie, she has grown up. She has become more adult, but she also realizes that she can still have these things from her childhood while being an adult, while having adult responsibilities. So it's... um, like what we're doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's really, it really lines up with what the mission of our podcast is, which is like holding on to your childhood, but like taking it from your perspective now as an adult and like holding on to your whimsy, but like tempering it with maturity. And I, I just thought that was so funny that the, like the very end of this movie was just like, hold on to your whimsy. Let's have a dance party of monsters in your room. Yeah. Like, <laughs> the only monsters that i would have wanted to hang out with are ludo Ludo. and sir didymus (laughs) um who at the end wanted to play scrabble and i was like i would play scrabble with sir didymus it's really only like the animals that i don't have a huge issue with so you just didn't like the goblins it's i don't like ones that look like people Mm. or birds Hmm. Oh, did you guys know that that owl in the very beginning of the movie was the first (laughs) creature made on CGI, like fully made on CGI ever? It was the first photorealistic. Quote, unquote. (laughs) Yeah, you can tell it's the first one. Yeah, Catherine's the one who told me that. (laughs) I would have been happier if this were a movie about owls. Yeah, I also. Also, was the point of the owl that jareth was the owl because the owl yes owls are not usually seen as like baddies no yeah they have I mean, they like swoop out of the sky and eat mice and stuff but like symbolically they're more about wisdom and like yeah i mean they're related to like athena they... you know that's yeah. sort of the biggest and he didn't strike me as an athena character yeah he he was they're clearly painted the bad guy there are also there's also a predatory nature to owls like in uh the rats of nim yeah, there's okay. an extremely yeah. scary owl yeah. but it is also a wise so, one it's a wise owl it is wise and it's it turns out to be friendly as opposed to jared but it's very scary is all i remember yeah. <laughs> from the rats of nim it's that movie being really scary I did not know how to pick apart this, like, relationship between Jareth and Sarah. Like, that's one of the things that left me very unsatisfied about the movie, because that, in and of itself, felt like Jim Henson and Terry Jones did not agree on what that was supposed to be. From what I understand, like, originally, she was going to have... Well, I mean, first version of the script, he was going to be, like, a goblin. Right. And then they decided they wanted to have a rock star to make the movie 
more successful. I almost said more palatable, (laughs) 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 but um, uh, more successful. And from what I understand, like early on drafts, there were going to be pictures of someone who looked like, well, David Bowie, but as like a rock star. And so Jareth, his appearance was uh, more insinuated to be something that she had thought up as like perfect male beauty. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it would be easier for him to entice her away from her task mm-hmm. because she was already attracted to him. Okay. Um, where the current version, that scene is supposed to symbolize more of a sexual awakening. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that, as that explicitly... Yes, the roofie scene. Like, was she in a wedding dress? I could not... I, Like, it was, it was beautifully a- costumed. I did not get what it was supposed to be saying. Like, it felt like, again, the creative team didn't agree on what that scene was. Well, I kind of... I mean, I feel like that scene is... For me, it's a very standard sort of... This is the fairy world. This is the, like... Mm-hmm. seduction of uh mortal human into like this is what bliss could be like but bliss has its dark underside kind of kind of thing and uh that tends to come with themes of y- yeah like sexual awakening it's just there, there there are so many you know mystical ballroom scenes in which a person is drugged falls asleep or like taken to a fairy world and then there's just this crazy whirling dancing masked people going on and the audience is supposed to feel uncomfortable about it it i i I wasn't particularly confused by the that scene i didn't think necessarily that the creative direction of that scene uh was confused but again it's just another disparate scene another separate thing placed into the larger Mm -hmm. story that doesn't really fit into a cohesive whole. And I think if they had leaned into it, I would have been more forgiving because like, I'm not, I'm not mad at the idea of a sexual awakening in a kid's movie. I'm fine with that. Right. We should be talking to children about like what they're feeling and all of that. I mean, that being said, uh, David Bowie's cod piece was a little much. Well, and David Bowie was, (laughs) (laughs) but this was like a scene that was framed by a roofie and yeah. had a predatory older man chasing after a younger woman. And that was uncomfortable. A real life, mm-hmm. by the way, a real life real predator. Real life predator. Somebody mm-hmm. who has had sex with a 14 year old. And I think Jesus we have God. to reckon with that, like watching this movie. Like, yeah, it's easy to be like, yeah, we're not going to talk about that, that, that thing because that's oh we should talk about it but like <laughs> yeah. we should absolutely because man nobody ever does and no one talks about david bowie nobody yeah. talks about david bowie because they want to like him so much also david bowie was not the only person considered for the role of jareth yeah among those people <laughs> mick jagger mm-hmm. michael jackson mm-hmm. ooh, and prince mm-hmm. um and then and with s- Jennifer Connelly, they were also thinking about Sarah Jessica Parker and Helena Bonham Carter. Oh, yeah. Oh, really? There was a weird yeah. list. Yeah. They also, the front runner before um, David Bowie was Sting. Yeah, That's yeah, who yeah. Jim Henson really wanted, but it was like his kids convinced him to oh, use David wow. Bowie. The fact that he's a predator kind of makes him, you know, fit you the again. role. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's that his definitely gave him some role insight. because, like, that's the, you know, it does. He's and, but like, I don't know if it would. So yes, the relationship between Jareth and Sarah is kind of creepy, but something about it makes it like, oh, it's okay because it's this. I don't, and I don't know what that thing is, and I don't think that that thing should. Be. I don't know that I agree with you. I don't think there's ever a part in the movie where you think, oh, this relationship is okay. I think you're meant to kind of feel uncomfortable. I disagree. That MC Escher scene where he's just kind of standing against a wall and singing and being sad, that's supposed to make you feel bad for Jareth. I got that feeling too. When he was like, I stopped the world for no one is like, it's almost like this teenage female fantasy of this older, powerful man who you've 
you've stopped his world to pay attention to you. Mm-hmm. It's we talked about Twilight briefly for a second, but it's like that where it's mm-hmm. Bella Swan was somehow enough <laughs> to get the attention of this like hundred year old virgin vampire. <laughs> no but it does it does rely on uh again society's sort of perception of of young women as being sort of naturally inherently attracted to wise wizened older men with a touch of danger danger. a touch of danger and which a lot of glitter which i feel can't be natural it's that older men want that to happen like with with this thing with drake and millie bobby brown going on um i was reading this article about that was just listing all of the rock stars in recent history who have had girlfriends who were like 14 15 and it's it's an extremely long list it's like steven tyler uh hillary duff was like 17 when she started dating joel madden uh, Elvis was well known for being really screwed up with younger girls. Um, the fact that we don't really like Sarah from the very beginning, that she's like just spoiled teenage brat character. Um, and also this movie had multiple writers and went through, you know, a lot of different hands. But, you know, we were talking about this when we were watching the movie, Madison and I, how many of those writers were women none of them none of them no there was one was that there was one her name was elaine something she is kind of seen as the second in command of the writing on this but she didn't come on until later yeah it's just it's just like you know the script it is it's written by a man with directed by a man you know and, and the fact that this teenage girl character is bratty and whiny from the very beginning we just don't like her is a product of the the writing and the way that the writers imagined you know teenage girls to be so yeah that we're all yeah even in and of itself that's that's a problem i have a list of creeps yeah give us that list of creeps here on grogtober ghoulintober times tober uh so elvis met Priscilla when she was 14. Yikes. R. Kelly was um, famously with Aaliyah when she was 15. Um, Jerry Seinfeld dated a 17-year-old. Wilder Valderrama dated Mandy Moore when she was 16. Lindsay Lohan when she was 17. And Demi Lovato when she was 17. Jerry Lee Lewis got married to a 14-year-old. Oh, my. F- this is making jo- me very uncomfortable. <laughs> This has been a pretty joyless episode. <laughs> this is not a happy movie. That being said, I just to talk about the folklore, I want to talk about that folklore of, uh, fairy tale structure. Uh, one of the sort of most basic structures of uh, a lot of folklore fairy tales is this idea that like a character goes on an adventure of some sort. They come across helpless creatures who are in trouble. They help those creatures and then in return at the end when they have to you know fight the boss <laughs> those creatures come back and help them that's the way that it happens in a lot of stories uh this is something that like i used to read a lot of fairy tale stories i like read some like the big yellow book of fairy tales the big red book of fairy tales stuff like that and in fact uh um so this is a like in that sense, a very basic story structure. And that's, you know, one of the other themes, one of the other elements of this is that, you know, helping people, being good to people will, you'll reap the rewards in the long run if you are good and kind and nice to innocent people. But does she do it to be nice or does she do it because she needs them? To and that's, her? that's the white <laughs> feminist aspect of it. And does she even really... She helps Ludo because she lets him down. Um, That scene, I think, like, when we were watching it, Robin, I yelled, like, perverts, like, at the screen because of... (laughs) Because I hated whoever came up with that scene with these, like, 
tiny dudes with sticks with scary uh, hairless bitey things that they're using to just torture an animal was horrifying in a fucked up way not a not a narrative way you know I was like this is needlessly fucked and like nothing in Lord of the Rings pissed me off the way this movie did with like how many fantastical creatures and the fucked up shit they were doing nothing upset me as much as this movie did I really agree with that yeah I'm just like who thought came up with this of like we're gonna have these horrible little creatures on sticks poking a defenseless animal like that's awful yeah people shouldn't think of that I hate to be like the mind police because there's a lot of weird shit that I'm like whatever you want to do who cares but that is just so weird and also we meet Hoggle who like is a main character in this story who we we actually haven't mentioned yet um, oh, yeah, I'm talking about Hoggle. Um, Hoggle, when we first meet him, he is electrocuting fairies. Yes. And, like, she calls him out on it, and she's like, why would you do that? Look how cute. And then the fairy bites her, and then she doesn't care about it anymore. Again, white feminist. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, it bit me, so it deserves to be tortured. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he was like, what do you expect? They're fairies. That's what they do. And, like, in folklore, that is true. Fairies yeah. are not very nice creatures, but, like, how do we deal with pests in our world? And, like, how Hoggle is torturing them. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he is supposed to be seen as somebody whose, like, morals are kind of questionable. Like, his his driving force is his cowardice. Yes. Um, And that's why we see him make so many mistakes. That's why we see him do things like electrocute the fairies instead of, like, maybe save them. Or... Why he gives Sarah a poisoned peach from Jareth in order to make her forget what she is looking for in the labyrinth in order to spoil the game? I don't know. Because Hoggle is the character who actually undergoes development. Yes. Yes. Like, fully does. More than any other character in the movie. Yeah, this is a movie about Hoggle, not about Sarah or Jareth. I don't like Hoggle. Yeah. I don't, well, okay. He does things that are not forgivable. That is true. I don't like all the noises Hoggle makes. <laughs> and, like, we, don't we also meet him peeing? Like, isn't he peeing? Into He's peeing! Lake? Yes, I... It's a perfectly natural function. I'm sensitive. That's true, but, like... Gross. How often do we see peeing in movies? That is not a thing that shows up often. <laughs> Robin, I don't ever see you peeing. Yeah, I've never seen you pee, Robin. Fair point. I think What's up I've with peed that, Robin? Near you? I think I've peed near you when we were blackout drunk. Y- yeah, right? we got out of a car and you peed behind a tree. Yeah. Oh yeah. Did you pee? I did not pee. I. That remains. That remains like something I've been told I did, and I remember before it, and I remember after it. But <laughs> don't remember that. <laughs> There's music in music and this film. Yeah, that. Oh, there is. How did everybody feel about the music? I loved the music except for Dance Magic Dance. Dance Magic Dance. I actually really like that song. It's the catchiest. You just did like the. You did a very coquettish like look to the side as you said. I feel like I'm gonna have a very unpopular opinion. Mm -hmm. What? I didn't really like the music. Oh. I thought the mu- movie could have been better with more character development, ne- less music. Absolutely. <laughs> but I think the music was still, part of I, the character development. I like the music w- in the fairy dance. I like the music in the MC Escher scene. And I like the end credits music. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess I, the music numbers I wasn't impressed by. Right. I mean, Dance Magic Dance was an abomination. Robin I think, liked it though. What, Robin, what what stuck out to you that you it's liked? It's a catchy tune. I mean, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of people that I know, like, so the I was telling Robin that I had a friend one time who dressed up as Jareth for Halloween, and I, I had never Ooh. seen Labyrinth, but he asked me to do his makeup for it. 
so I did but like <laughs> halfway through the movie I was like I wish I had seen this movie because then I would get it um he also really liked that song and he would like sing dance magic da- dance at work a lot Ew. <laughs> <laughs> And I had never seen it, so I was like, I don't get it. And I still don't really get it. <laughs> so for me, the what? musical numbers provided a similar effect to the puppetry in that it is a sort of, I don't know what, what Breck might call an alienating factor. Uh, it it provides like, a, you know, it's it's the same sort of thing as in a musical. It's it's It shows us that this is a fantasy world. It shows us that this is a world in which non-regular things happen regularly that allows us to perceive the story through a lens which we don't feel like we have to be familiar with this but it the story that's being told is still something that is familiar so we can process it by distancing ourselves from it can i just say that i would agree with you if David Bowie could act, excuse you, he plays a predator very well. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, honestly, he, that, that that's better. projection of self. That's not because he, he just was a predator. Yeah, so not impressed by that. No, didn't I? Don't think David Bowie's a good actor. I think he's I a great singer, and I like his music. I don't think this movie required acting. Yeah, honestly, I think here's here's where I disagree. Is I think that like in the movie that Jim Henson was making, that's true. In the movie that Terry Jones wanted to make, that wasn't true. And so David Bowie's performance stayed somewhere in between, where he that felt like he was too. trying to make character development, but he wasn't really doing it. Jim Henson, George Lucas version is more. He's a symbol. He's just something flashy to he's look at thing. and listen yeah, he's, to. He's the Goblin King, where yeah. Terry Jones is. It feels like Terry Jones's interpretation, given what I, all the things that I've read, is that he wanted that to be a real character with real motivation and real feeling. And personhood. And somewhere along the line that got taken away, but David Bowie still tried to play it. Uh, Labyrinth, I feel, doesn't tell me anything about myself as a woman that I don't already know. Mm-hmm. Didn't make me feel like, in my womanhood, I can be strong... I guess watching it as a child or as a teenager might be a different experience, but it's also um, showing you this, like, your sexual awakening with David Bowie, and... What do you think that the movie was trying to tell you as a woman? That I'm a brat, Mm -hmm. and I need to be an adult now. Yeah, that's what I felt, too. And there will be these glittery men that will lead me astray from (laughs) child rearing which is my duty (laughs) hot take hot take hot take yeah honestly i kind of got that too the whole like she has to grow up in order to look after the baby thing you have to leave the fantasy Mm -hmm. world behind in order to take care of children and had to give up her prized possession lancelot and give it to a child that she didn't even, wasn't even her choice to bring into the world. There's something even more about it that it's not her child. It's a kid that she didn't even choose. Would you have stayed at the fairy ball with Jareth? Hmm. Interesting question. Well, let me first say that it was beautiful. It was fantastical. And there was some cool music going on. I like that song a lot. If. I had been roofied to forget what I was doing, perhaps. I feel like I can be pretty gullible. So I feel like I <laughs> could have been convinced that like this was the fairy land I was supposed to live in. Um, Sarah shows something a little bit stronger, perhaps. But also I didn't feel like I believed that very much given the character that had been laid out before me. Yeah. If I were attracted to men, I would have stayed. Yeah. 
I would have been like, I don't want to go back. There's glitter everywhere. People are wearing masks. Let's be clear. It's the glitter that would have kept me there. (laughs) (laughs) If I had to save my parents' dog or something and I was on this quest and you put me in just a room of glitter, (laughs) it would have been over. Your quest would be done. My quest is finished. (laughs) Game over. That's not untrue. (laughs) It's not a lie. I just want everybody listening to know that that is absolutely true. Um, I have been shopping with Catherine where like nothing phased her. And then suddenly she practically dropped to her knees and gasped when she found some glitter boots. (laughs) (laughs) And she had to have them and they were perfect. This episode and every episode features the song Enthusiast by the band Tours. To make a suggestion, tweet the name of your favorite television show, movie, book, or video game to at GrowThePodUp with a brief message about why it was meaningful to you. A beef message. (laughs) Brief message. A roast beef message. I will. We will accept nothing else. Give me either. I will accept either Um... a brief message or a roast beef message. Ew. I will not. You can also send us a voice message with your suggestions to growthepodup at gmail.com. Share a personal story, a fond memory, or a funny anecdote. Those are your only options. And with your permission, we'll share your message on the air. You've been listening to Grow Up, a Saturday morning podcast with the Goblin King, Katherine Johnson. With Robin Kopick. Oh, Catherine <laughs> changed my name. No, I didn't! (laughs) (laughs) It was Robin! (laughs) (laughs) Good goof, Robin, good goof. It was Robin! I love how you always blame the Goblin Queen. (laughs) It was Robin! I'm I'm roasting Catherine today. (laughs) By the way, just so you guys know, we changed her name to Thumbbart. Like what you hear? We hope so. If you do, please leave us a review on iTunes or on our Facebook page. If you really like us, please share our podcast with your friends, donate to our podcast, or follow us on your favorite social media platform. We're at GrowThePodUp on, like, everything. Join us next time as we continue Grogtober with... Nope. That's a fallacy. Smogtober. With, uh... Fogtober. Hagtober. Bag lady tober. Cool tober. <laughs> no, it has to be a G. Um, Goofy tober. In our next episode, it's, it's all been coming up to this, all of our spooky, oh, scary I'm episodes. so excited. I'm like, spooky coming. Next ep- Ew, what? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. This is about our childhoods. Anyways, um, your childhood's maybe. Join us next week for Hocus Pocus. <laughs>